The Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. Welcome to this week's Collective Whisper Podcast. I am your host, Simon King. So I hope you're all doing well, and I hope you're enjoying the episodes we've given you so far, and the great content, and the great guests. We'd also like to remind you, please like the show, share the show, tell everybody you know if you like the podcast. Thank you very much. We appreciate it a lot. Today, I will be talking with Ian Bailey. Ian Bailey is an English journalist and poet living in West Cork who was arrested twice and convicted in absentia in relation to the murder of French film producer Sophie Toscan de Plantier on the 23rd of December 1996, but maintains his innocence. Ian Kenneth Bailey was born in Manchester, England. He worked variously as a freelance journalist, sometimes published under the name Owen Bailey. He moved to Ireland in 1991 and lived with his partner Jules Thomas in Goleen from 1992 until their separation in 2020. In 2019, he was tried and convicted in a French court for the murder of Sophie Toscan de Plantier and sentenced to 25 years in the French prison. The Irish government refused to recognise the court proceedings and thus far have not granted the extradition. This year, the Gardaí will open this cold case for further review, with Ian Bailey offering to assist him in any way possible. So, Ian Bailey, welcome to the show. How are you? Uh, I'm uh, not too bad, thank you very much. Um, yeah. Very good. We've been sweltering away as, as the whole world is sort of burning up at the moment, it would appear. But anyway. No. Yeah, because you, like, obviously, I'm in Alicante in Spain, but you're, you're in Ireland. So the weather is pretty warm in Ireland still at the moment, isn't it? Uh, no, it's actually gone. It's been very pleasant today. It's about 22 degrees, um, nice, cool sea breeze. I had actually, funnily enough, on, on, the, on the topic of Spain and Madrid, it was the, the last time I was able, ever able to travel abroad before uh, a thing called an, a European arrest warrant was issued against me back in 2000 and, oh, uh, I can't quite remember the dates, was actually Barcelona. It was 2000 and, uh, 2007, actually, the first one, I think, or 2008. Oh, okay. But I, I, I came back from Barcelona and, um, yeah, so... Anyway, very many happy memories of Madrid and Barcelona. Okay, very good. I always, before we kind of get into your life now, I always like to go back to kind of just obviously your early life and, you know, what set you out on the road to becoming a journalist and what influenced your poetry and all of these things. So you, you were born in Manchester, yes? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Tell us about life in Manchester. Well, I was born in St. Mary's Hospital in Manchester, but then my, my parents, actually, my father was a butcher and he had a, uh, a butcher shop in Stockport with my uh, K Kenneth, with my mother Bren, bless her. And uh, so I grew up actually in Stockport, although I used to go to Manchester. We used to go like, most Saturdays for the flicks, the cinemas. And that's one of my earliest recollections, actually. And you, 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 you touched on the question of poetry there. And my father, my father Ken, was a, 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 he taught me how to, to read and my mother taught me how to write. And it's interesting, the first significant non-nursery rhyme poem that I think I remember, and he gave it to me, it's a very good poem, is by Roger Kipling called If. And I think a lot of people know that, you know, if, if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on me or you. That's a great poem. Uh, it's a great poem. It should, be, it should be in the curriculum globally. It's advice, obviously, from a father to a son, could be advice to a mother to a daughter, actually, as well. 
Yes, of course. I've always wanted it in mind, Simon. Yes. You know, and when everybody was blaming certain things on me, um, losing their heads, I was trying to keep my keep head. your head about you. And when you were in the UK, and you know, you you had your life there, and you were working as a journalist for different newspapers, and then tell us about you know the change then that just made you want to go to Ireland. Like what what was the thing that you said I'd like to go? Thing because. I celebrated my, th- I'm 30 years of blowing, and I've just written a poem called 30 Years of Blowing on Midsummer's Day, uh, 1991. I came to Ireland. But the, the I mean, very uh, short, long story short, um, I was in, you know, I'd been working as a journalist, Fleet Street journalist, special correspondent um, for many years. Most of my friends in London were, 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 were Irish people, and I had quite a lot of contacts with Ireland. I'd been to Ireland in the 80s. And I had contacts and I thought, actually, I'm, I'm, um, I, I, I don't like this place. I don't like the politics. I don't like the way it's going. And I, you know, because obviously a common language inflicted on you by the Sassanar, by the way, you know, uh, English. Um, I was able to function when I came over as, uh, as a journalist. And um, so I left, uh, I left my home and uh, came over here and, uh, you know, I, I, don't regret well i regret one or two things but 30 years i've been here now so okay and why predominantly cork and you know school in that area i had a contact with um again a long long story short um so a, a, a friend of mine had a, a whole, um, his father had a place in crookhaven and you know right down in the southwest of, of cork and the, the, the finger of the mizzen as it were, thumb of the mizzen and i came over and so well, initially, when I left England, London, left the heart of decomposing nation, took the tube train for the station, I came to Crookhaven. I had a storage place for all my clothing. I spent a bit of time there, and then I went off on a sort of romantic ramble around Ireland. I had friends and jobs to go to, and um, that, that was the beginning. Okay, okay. And Cork kind of had a certain appeal to you above other places? I just fell in, I, I, do you know what, I've, I've been analysing this, I fell in love with, now, love is a very funny thing, isn't it? You know, it's a very multifaceted thing in love, and you can fall in love with a person, you can fall in love with different things. I fell in love with a place, a people, and a culture. Okay, okay. And the great thing about falling in love with a place, a people, and a culture is, your heart's never going to be broken, because they're never going to say, no. the journey's over, you know? Well, I, I suppose, you know, these places in Cork, they can be very remote, but at the same time, they're great places and, you know, the people are great and there's a great culture and you can see why a lot of people flock to these places. Yeah, and of course, you, you see, but the, one of the things the English don't, I'm, by the way, I'm, I'm more Welsh than I am English, so one of the things the English really don't have that the Irish have in abundance is a thing called the, the crack, you know, and we're not talking about... Uh, not that crack, the other crack. And it's wonderful. I mean, the people are just great and lovely in the culture, you know, the music, the poetry, and uh, yeah. Okay, and so when you came to school and you were in that town, and it's a small town, and where you were living is very remote, this location. Did you feel that there was a lot of blow-ins, as you call them, in the town already, and you fitted in quite easily? 
Oh, I don't know if I fitted in quite easily. I mean, uh, to, to, to fit me in easily would be, to, be to, to say, you know, fitting a, a square into a circle. But um, I, I found work in the winter of 1990. Uh, that was uh, 1991, rather. That was the year I came across. And I found work in, in Skull in the winter. Uh, I found a home to rent. Uh, and um, I was, you know, working away. And then I met a lady, um, you know, a Welsh lady. Um, uh, Jules, Jules Thomas, my my ex partner now. You know, thus began a um, a drama, a, mel- a melodrama. I'm being very flippant. I'm in a very flippant mood at the moment. And you, might, you might ask me later on why I'm in a flippant mood. A melodrama. Okay. Don't don't worry. From what I've seen of you over the years, just in different interviews and from some of those documentaries you're saying, you are you're a very intelligent man, and you like to even have a challenge in a conversation. You like that dialogue, don't you? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know about I mean, intelligent person. I'm, of course. All I know is I've got a lot to learn yet. So I learn every day, um, if, you know. But, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm my nature, and I was from an early age, journeys to an end, you know, in effect, you know, to, to you know, a career making money, paying the bills. I like people and, um, you, you, you know, I'm, I'm just, uh, and I'm making the best of a bad lot, you might say, because, you know, it's been 25 years now since I was falsely accused of a crime I had nothing to do with. And after 20, a quarter of a century, there's just been a fairly tectonic shift in um, the, 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 the events. So you probably know this, um, Yes, yes. When we look back at the events and what happened with, with the murder of uh, Sophie Toscan de Plantier and obviously all of the things that have happened since. Just on that, you know, I have nothing to do with it. I have the greatest respect for her family. And I think it's just such a tragedy anyway. So, yeah. Yeah, of course, of course. And, and we appreciate you saying that, too. You know, going back to that time, because it's been a long 25 years, I imagine, for you, and you've had, you know, many run-ins with the Gardaí, and, you know, you've been in court lots of times, and you're always trying to prove your innocence. And one of the things that I I kind of get from Mm -hmm. all of this as well is that your relationship with the people of Skull has changed dramatically over the years from when you first got there to now even, no? Well, I I don't know. I mean, I was in Skull on Sunday doing a market. Um, I've got a lot of friends in Skull. Um, And uh, I don't don't know. I I can't really answer that one. All all I know is I I got, for instance, last Sunday I went there, I got a great, well, say a great reception. Uh, I did, yeah. I got a really warm reception, and I was trading, selling my uh, various products, my my poetry. And I, I mean, I might as well use this as a plug. I've now got an, a T-shirt as well, which has a schwedgelin, <laughs> oh, yeah, which means, uh, you know, and Irish people know, yes, we can. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we can, like Barack Obama. <laughs> it is Barack Obama. Yes, translated into Schelga. When you went there, because. I want to talk about some of the things, obviously, that have been said about you in by the people in school. So um, for some people, when you came to the town, they felt that you were imposing and you were somebody who made their presence felt. So do you think that this legend of you, of who you are, also was detrimental to you in the fact that people said oh it must be this guy because he 
is intimidating. Do you think that people used your character against you? No, well, I, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd probably dispute what you said initially, but I, I mean, just on, on a particular point, when this terrible crime that I had nothing to do with happened, and I was the lead reporter on it, we do know that guards, and this has been commented on in official documents of DPP's report, the guards went around knocking on people's doors, asking them questions, and then telling them that I was the murderer. And even our neighbours, okay. you know, at the time, I mean, I was living in a very rural area. I'm in more an urban area at the moment. But, you know, so there, there was a prejudice. And the, the definitive document on, on the whole thing is a DPP's report published in 2001 in which the DPP's officer refers to this case of the investigation. He rejects all of the so-called evidence that's been hatched up and manufactured against me and says the investigation was thoroughly flawed and prejudiced. Okay, okay. You know? With all the evidence, because some would say... Well, well, what, on that point, I'm just... Don't forget, I'm a lawyer as well with three, three degrees. Everything I say to you is not coming from a place where I'm accusing you. Everything I'm just... I'm saying to you is um, with the evidence... Where, where some people would say it's damning to you, and obviously with the French court saying it's damning, do you think that a lot of that evidence obviously is circumstantial and it had been influenced by the Gardaí? Well, I mean, I'm a lawyer, okay, with three degrees of yeah. law, first-class master. I understand what evidence means in, in common law. There was never any evidence. Uh, there may have been some, what you might call circumstantial, but there were, there were false statements manufactured and people were persuaded to lie in statements which have been long retracted. Yes. And as we know, it led to the culmination of me being tried in my absence in Paris in 2019. Now, there's been a significant change of very recently. Um, you, you, well, so just to explain to your listeners and, and, and viewers, so for, for 25 years, uh, I've been cast in the role of the, the, the murderer or the suspect. I was tried in France in my absence on a, a stack of statements which had been long rejected, uh, overturned or withdrawn in Ireland. Uh, now, it turns out, apparently, there is a viable, a living French suspect in, somewhere in, 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 in France. And I always said right from the beginning, my instinct as a lead journalist, and I, I, other people shared this feeling as well, that it was somehow, the, the place where the lady lived was so isolated, you would not find it. You, you couldn't possibly find it in a month of Sundays. You, well, you, you, it was so isolated. Somebody knew that she was coming over. And I believe that it was then, 25 years ago, 25 and a half years ago, an assassination from France. And I still believe that to be the case. And it would appear... There is new information that's come out. I'm not sure who, who and where from, which would, which will hopefully in the not too far distant future before I'm dead lead to my complete vindication. Okay, okay. And because this is the thing for the viewer or somebody who comes onto this case in a new manner, the way it's all stacked up, it just points to you. And that, you know, that's my honest opinion. It just points to you. But I'm not saying that it is you. Simon, I mean, I, I would take issue with you on that, that no, it doesn't point to me. There, there, there yeah. was a conspiracy to pervert the course of justice by now many dead members of Angara Shiakana. Yeah, don't what get me you? wrong, Ian. Sorry, I'm not saying that it is you. What I'm saying is they have made it seem 
in with all these documentaries and with all of the evidence that they're saying, oh, it's damning. Look, look at it. But what you're saying is what I agree with is that there's far more things that have been used against you. So I'm not saying I'm not saying it's you. What I'm trying to say is they they have made it look like it's you. Oh, there was a de- definitely a deliberate attempt to put me. Well, do you know what? I mean, the best equate, uh, similarity I can use is the Birmingham Six and the Guildford Four. It, yeah, it, okay. It's a form of investigation which is known in policing terms or um, uh, criminology criminology terms as result-oriented investigation. Okay. And it's where you decide you're going to put, you decide, I'm going to put so-and-so, I'm going to put Simon, you, in the frame. Right. And once I've decided that, I don't need to bother going anywhere else, do I? Because I'm going to put you in the frame. And then it's only a case yes. of manufacturing the evidence to try to put you in the, in, in the box. And that's what went on. Build the case around that suspect. Yeah, absolutely. And instead of, instead of going, I mean, there were 50, 56 suspects initially. And, of those 56, there was a book, and I was one of them. Um, when G-Stock, the, the um, you know, independent uh, Garda oversight um, of investigating authority, looked at it, when they found the book the book with the suspects in, guess what? They found that somebody had sliced out all of the other suspects, 56 of them. It was a clean line. It must have been a, like a razor blade or something used. And there's only one suspect in the book, and that's me. Wow. Do you think for the Gardaí at that time, it was just easy to point the finger at you because you live close to her and they could make it seem like a good fit? Or do you think they had something against you? Um, maybe a bit of both. I think there was definitely, I got the sense of xenophobia when I was being uh, interrogated. Okay. But two, the chief detective actually told a friend of mine, that he's, I won't mention his name, he's a detective he featured in, both uh, documentaries, yeah. everybody knows him over here, from Thompson Kerry. Um, and um, he said I was the ideal suspect, you know. And I, I think from his point of view, um, okay. that about sums it up. I was the ideal suspect. You know, and I, and I was sort of English. I may have been a bit brash. I think I probably was a little bit brash because I came out of London, you know, over to a rural island. And I had a bit of my London maybe, you know, bollocks and brashness about me but you know, I hopefully dropped that, that, that a long time ago Right Well it's easy to see in those small towns it doesn't matter if it's a, a Yank coming to a small town in the UK or an Englishman coming to a small town in Ireland is that sometimes people can take offence to your manner or your character or the, your mannerisms so always you'll stand out I think now in, in, in the island of 2022 that we live in I, this island I've been here 30 years when I first came here, the milk was being delivered to the cremery in the horse and cart, largely. And within a couple of years, you know, there was only one last farmer delivering his milk. Ireland is a very, very vibrant, exciting, multicultural place now. It's moved on hugely. It's um, it's not the island that it was 25 years ago, that's for sure. If we look at, again, I'm going to use this word evidence, because what is the evidence if it's circumstantial, if it doesn't exist? And a lot of the evidence now, some of it's disappeared. Mm-hmm. But let's just look at some of the items in it. So, for example, this the, the metal gate, how does the metal gate disappear? How does that happen? Well, I mean, that's a very good question. And it was a six-bar uh, metal gate, blood splattered. I saw the scene of crime photographs, which apparently and unexplainedly to this day just happened to disappear or be disappeared. That's crazy. I know it is. And I think the thing is this, any evidence that was suggestive of my innocence was lost. <laughs> right. Interestingly enough. Now, there have been, so just to bring your listeners and viewers up to date, 
there's been a cold case. Now, I, last March, I wrote to the new commissioner of Angada Shirkana, Drew Harris, as a clean pair of hands. In other words, he, was, he wasn't involved in the original case. He only relatively recently came in to the you know, island from the north and asked him for a cold case re review. Now, uh, uh, I think about a month ago, maybe five, four, three or four weeks ago, I heard that there is going to be a completely comprehensive cold case review. And at the same time, only from media reports I, I, I hear this, that there is a, a suspect now in France. Okay. Uh, now, that cold case review will take, I don't know, a long, probably quite a while. It's a very, very complicated case. Now, you touched on evidence and DNA. Well, I mentioned DNA. So DNA technology has moved on hugely. We know from, um, and this is true, that there was what I call alien blood DNA found on her. That's to say, not of the victims, Madame de Plantier. Okay. Now, there was some a, a spot found on the back door of the house and also on her boot that was not... And, and they had my blood, by the way. They had my DNA, so it obviously wasn't mine. And now, with the new techniques that have occurred in, in you know, scientific um, advancement, I'm hoping that it's going to be possible. And you, you know, you, you probably know this, that you, you can now tell from a, the tiniest, tiniest bit of DNA, the sex of the person, and actually where they come from, the eth ethno ethnicity of them. You know, should it might be my great prayer and my prayer for Jules as well. I know it's her prayer that um, the truth come out and that we, that I am exonerated and, and the real I, um, murderer is identified. And that would be, you know, that, that would be for me, obviously, uh, yeah, it would be vindication. Yeah. Can I ask you then about the suspect? Because we won't just talk about the suspect just yet. But when that cold case suspect, is he a suspect by the French authorities or the Irish authorities? I'm not sure about this, but I think maybe more the French or the Irish authorities. I don't know, to be honest. And we're going to have to just wait and see where this goes. But Okay. Now, I can tell you is this, and your, your listeners and viewers, that there was a, a story in the Sunday Independent this Sunday, which was an interview with a, a Sunday, a respected Sunday Independent journalist, um, and the French ambassador to Ireland, who was talking about this case uh, to her, and he said um, that the, the significant thing he said was that the French authorities will give the Irish authorities every help uh, and consideration they can in their cold case investigation, which is, you know, very good and positive. Okay, because it would be a shame if the ruling that they made already and with the extradition currently and are trying to be in progress, it would be a shame if they stopped proceedings and stopped investigating because they feel they have a verdict. Because even if you were... I think that was the initial view in France last year when this matter was raised, that the French said, oh, no, you know, it's we, we've got, we, we know who it is. It's that, we have our so man. We're Bailey, and we just want him. And as your listeners will probably know or not know, I was actually arrested twice domestically for, a mur for murder, as was my partner. And then, on top of that, I was arrested three times on European arrest warrants, which were challenged by myself here with my Frank Bellamer of Cork. Uh, thank you yeah. very much, Frank. Um, and rejected by the Irish courts, including the Supreme Court. Okay. Nobody in the world, Simon, has been through this before. No, nobody has been through anything like this before. You know, I mean, they, you know, they, they try, tried their damnedest to, 
you know, get me. And um, now it's he, and I noticed the uncle of the, the victim in France, um, Professor Gazot, has for the first time acknowledged that it may not be, um, you know, that that English or Welsh so and so Bailey. Right. Okay. Okay. Well, well, that will be good for you. And can I ask then about when you see and hear the so-called evidence that they have, and when they talk about which was you know, for me was something that you explained, but they put it in a different way, whereas the scratches on your arm, the nick on your forehead. So you gave your explanation, but you had the Italian girl who was staying in the house and mm-hmm. she came forward and testified. So for you... She's not... No, 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 no right. So, so let's get everything in, all, all in a row. Right. So I did have some light scratches on my arm at that Christmas from cutting down a Christmas, shimmering up, shimmying up a Christmas. Killing three turkeys, and I got a little scratch on my forehead. And this is all witnessed, by the way, by other people. You know. And then we, there was a guest, a lady, an Italian lady, staying at the house, and she was then Netflix last year went out and made a documentary, or you know, over a couple of years, they got to the French girl and they persuaded her to make some sort of erroneous statement that she'd seen in a in a, a, um, a pocket in the bathroom a black coat. She's since retracted that statement and said she was under great emotional stress at the time and said it to, I don't know why she said it. She's apologized to Jules as my ex-partner on the nonsense. So the, the, the black coat, why is that important? Well, I did used to, well, I do have now still, I have new black coats, you know, winter coats, lo- lovely, you know. Yes. Or whatever, but the suggestion I think was that I'd been wearing that coat at the time I I committed the crime, uh, and it was may, maybe there was blood on it, and that I destroyed the coat. The interesting thing is that in the, the Netflix documentary, the chief detective who's interviewed lies to camera by saying I destroyed the coat, and the reason I can prove it's an absolute lie is because on the first arrest, which was on the I think thirteenth or twelfth or thirteenth. Um, uh, February 1997, a lot of my clothing items were taken away. Eventually, I got them back. Well, I got a list of the items that were taken. And number one on the top of the list is a long black coat. Uh, and the implicate the story in the Netflix was I had somehow destroyed this long black coat. And yet there in black and white evidence, it's a fact that there they the police took my long black coat. I never got it back. A bit like the, and it, what, what happened to it, I don't know. It's a bit like the disappearing six-bar gate, never been explained. So when they talk in the documentary about the mattress and the burning of the claws and finding the buttons and that stuff, that's totally false. Ah, the, the buttons is a load of, the, the, I tell, I'll tell you what, the buttons is a load of fucking bollocks. And Sorry to use that language. but um, No, no, speak away, speak freely. I mean, one, I've only seen one sequence from the Netflix. Okay, right. Now, Buttons tend to be made, and that, that, the coat in question was actually, it was my grandfather's old railwoman coat. I'd had it for years. It was, it was, it was a lovely, but thick, really winter coat. The buttons I, were made either of plastic or Bakelite. Right? If you have a fire, they melt. Yeah. The, the forensic man to say that there were buttons found in the fire is an absolute, well, he's lying. He's lying. Right, right. Because when they found the mattress freshly burning, or they said it was freshly burning, and they say they found clothes within it, but I mean, 
which 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 was which was um, through. We we had a fire in November when we were clearing out what we call the studios and studio house, and there was an old mouse infested horsehair mattress, and we dragged it out. It's very heavy. We dragged it out of the place, and we put we we put put it on the fire, and that was back in October, November. And the suggestion that there was a new fire, and I'd been burning evidential matter at Christmas after the murder, is a total. Lie. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And 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 and, and, and approvable lie as well. I think. Yeah, because see, when people watch these kind of shows, they see the evidence as the editor of the show or the producer wants them to see it. So you have a one-sided mm-hmm. story, so you never see it completely, and you never see if something is fabricated. No, and I mean the the Netflix um, people. I, I mean, I, I call Netflix the devil's very own channel, but. <laughs> Um, you know, everybody's entitled to their views. Um, and there are actually, I, I believe at the moment, there are legal proceedings being taken against Netflix by different individuals to do with that program. And I, I don't want to go too much in, 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 into that. Because, okay, okay, yeah. You know, there are when, when something's before the law, you really shouldn't be really commenting about it too much. I take, I take your point that people uh, would have believed, you know, you see, if you, if you believe the Netflix, which I knew was always going to be, a non-objective, demonizing piece of propaganda, um, as opposed to the Jim Sheridan film, which was seen by very few in comparison to the Netflix. If you believe that, you may well form the opinion that I am a, uh, you know, I'm, I'm somehow guilty of this. Mm, yes. And and you see, this thing in society, we sometimes, you know, you look, you look at the, the person who is maybe very well respected or is considered, you know, the nice, quiet guy. And then you look at somebody else who is a little more brash or fits the mold, so to speak. And it's easy to look in that direction and say, well, it must have been him. So this is the thing. I always think it's not about taking sides or not. It's not about defending someone who could be innocent or guilty. It's about looking at the facts and then making a decision. But if the facts are presented wrongly, how can you make that decision? Yeah, I, I, I'd agree. You know, anyway, I mean, um, life goes on. Those those projects, those film projects came out last year. And last year was 2021, my life was uh, it was like being tied to the back of a wild, out-of-control horse. Okay. Uh, things have settled down a bit now. I'm getting a huge and immense amount of support from the, I'd say, to quote Flann O'Brien, the plain people of Ireland, the good people of Ireland, but particularly the young people of Ireland. They, they seem to be very, you know, um, I don't know. It's because, uh, you know, for, for 25 years I was demonized and, and now I'm being idolized and eulogized by certain people. OK, OK. Well, it's good that new eyes are looking upon it, because if something happens in the case and of course you will get those new people who will say, well, like there's a lot of amateur sleuths out there and there's people that investigate these things online. So it's good that people have fresh eyes on it. But also it's good that people can see the inadequacy of these, you know, investigations and how things can go wrong. So here we are, the next chapter to to unfold. So can I ask you then, obviously, with the French, let's look at the French extradition, what they're trying to do. So you mentioned earlier that in like 2016 or 17, they issued a European arrest warrant. Does that effectively mean once they issued that, you couldn't travel or without danger of being arrested? 
yeah, no, I mean, I, I wasn't even able to go to my mother's funeral in 2016, which was one of the saddest aspects okay. of this whole, whole thing, Brenda. Um, but uh, no, I can't leave Ireland at the moment. If I was to leave Ireland to go to anywhere, I would be arrested on point of entry, um, and I would, uh, and I guess the, the 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 word is the so the European arrest warrant is is still active out there. So I'm basically I'm a prisoner in Ireland, but I'm not too happy. Literally, right now, if you went to France. You would be arrested in the airport. Well, yeah. Well, I'm not going to go to France. I mean, that's what they've been trying to do. They've been trying yeah. to extradite me from here to to France. If I went anywhere other than France, I'd be arrested at point of entry. That's the point. Okay. I'm um I'm a prisoner in twenty. I, I see. I couldn't even. I, I can't even go and see my friends in Belfast. Um, for instance, you know, I'd, I if I cross the border into. People say, "Oh, the European uh, have Britain come out of the European arrest warrant?" I'm not sure if they have, but there's, a, there's still an extradition treaty between Britain and France. Uh, Britain and France, yeah. So the, the, alarm, the, the alarm bells would go off immediately, right? And even though the French authorities have said, if you were extradited, you would get a retrial, do you think that would happen? Well, I mean, you have that right under French law, but the problem about French law is it accepts lies and rejected statements and statements from dead people that have been discredited into evidence. They have a completely different system of law to, you know, we, we call our system here in Ireland and England and America and com the Commonwealth, the, you know, the common law, yeah. which requires a the common law. certain um, standard of proof and you're presumed innocent until proved guilty. In France, you're presumed guilty until you can prove your innocence. So they've got a completely different system from, and it's based on Bonaparte, it's, it's, you know, Boney, old Napoleon Bonaparte's. Yeah, yes, he, yes, yes. He introduced into French law, um, it, it gave them the right to impose French law on anywhere in the world. It's called extraterritoriality, extraterritoriality. I can't hardly say it. Yeah, but, but it, you see, to this day, you can see how they're using it to still have that power, but it's not fair in that respect. Mm. And do you think then that if the cold case review here, if they if they'd vindicated you but didn't find another suspect, do you think that the French court will ever accept that vindication? I don't know. I mean, that, that's a hypothetical question at this stage, and it's a very good question to ask. And I've been people have been asking me that actually um, just locally. We'll have to wait and see, you know. We'll have to wait and see what this cold case uh, review leads to. I've, I've indicated I'm fully prepared and will cooperate in any meaningful way I can with the reinvestigation, and we'll just have to wait and see. It won't won't happen overnight. This this is going to be a fairly sort of mm, protracted thing. I'm guessing it will probably take a, at least a year or two. Um, but at least it's happening. And, Although it's not a total vindication, which is what I'm, I've always been hoping, you know, to achieve before I die, it's certainly feeling to me personally, um, subjectively, like a partial um, vindication. It, it, there's been a shift, and, and I know that because of the way people have been okay. responding and reacting to me over the last two or three weeks. I've got a lot of people come up to me saying they're really, really pleased to hear this is going on. 
they've always believed me to be innocent and they're, they're right behind me. Okay, it's good that you're getting the support. Can I touch upon then, you know, some other things yeah. like yeah. what I call the black humor admissions. So, so things you said that you said they were black humor and your uh -huh. sarcasm and part of your character. Do you feel that some things you've said in the past have gotten you into trouble more yeah. with the law? Oh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the DPP 2001 critique, which anybody who really wants to be an expert on the case or have in, in, interior knowledge of it should read. He said, he referred to those as the my alleged informal um, admissions. And in the chapter which he deals with that, he says clearly it was indicative of my 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 sense of dark dark humor, sarcasm, irony, or whatever. And uh, I, I mean, clearly, you know, I, I would. Uh, what did um, the French singer say? Uh, I, you know, I, I, I regret nothing. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I have got regrets. You know, that was just me. But it, it was actually acknowledged by the DPP that. Actually, that was an indication of, of of my just my you know my humour. I've got a dark, fairly dark sense yes. of humour. And do you think that in those moments, that when you said those things to those people, that well, let's identify what the, what they were specifically. Yeah. I think there was a there was okay. a newspaper uh, a news editor who I was working for. There were a couple of other people. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, um, anyway, so they were. I think the ones you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, and the uh, the young boy, the fourteen year old boy, and uh, no, I mean the, the couple. The, the thing is, they were all made, and the DPP's yeah. report again. I keep referring to it. Uh, talk, talks about this. You, there's a thing called suggestibility, and when you you, you tell somebody, say I said about you, like, uh, Simon, he's right. You're right, fucking boy. You know, by the way. I mean, he never paid. Yeah, <laughs> you might yeah. be, you might not be, but anyway, don't take this personally. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. No, he's right, Simon. Do you know what he did? He should, yeah, he went <laughs> off and he, he did this, yeah. that, and the other. And then you go, so you tell people, if you tell people a certain thing and they maybe don't like you a bit, because maybe they've got some, some, uh, re, uh, uh, you know, untimed reason to be prejudiced, they tend to, they can often tend to believe that. And that's what happened in this case. And it, it the DPP commented on this. Right. That by going around and the, the guards telling people, and uh, to be honest with you, as a journalist of uh, many years outstanding, you know, I, if I was investigating this, a, a, a story, and I was told by my, my trusted guarder, you know, um, anonymous sources, have no doubt it is that fecking so-and-so, Simon, or, you know, Bailey and Michael, I'd probably tend, I might be always questioning, but I'd probably tend to sort of believe they were telling me the truth. And that's what happened at the beginning. A lot of the media actually bought the line the guards were saying to them. Have no doubt it's that. And we know this because I'll tell you what, we got a hold of transcripts of um, tapes, recorded conversations between the media and the guards. And they were talking about me in very, very, oh, disrespectful terms, to say the least. They were talking about me as a so-and-so uh, -so effing um, English B, B, beginning with B and with X. They already had a prejudice towards you. Yeah, and it was actually, um, it, it was quite clear on the first arrest. And it, it was like, I think it, the one, I can't remember who said it to me, one of them, he's probably dead now, but uh, I mentioned this in court as well, so it's in, on record. Oh, if, if, if you think an English so-and-so can get away with doing this, and the emphasis was always on the Englishness, and I'm actually more Welsh than I am English. Yeah. 
So I was I was picking up xenophobia and 800 years of historic uh, prejudice. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. And it can happen. It is because, you know, as you said, there, there's a there's a deep history there. And for some people, especially, you know, 20, 30 years ago, that was very inherent in Irish society. Yeah. And I don't think it is. Uh, it, it may still be there in, in, in a very minimal way. But, I, I, you know, modern Ireland is, is, is quite different from the island that I came to in 2000 and, uh, and in 1991 when I first came. One part of this investigation which is very surreal is the whole Marie Farrell thing because Marie Farrell, um, I mean, her testimony, you know, she says that she said it was you on Kelfada Bridge. She had no doubt. She said you threatened her and all of these things. But then she redacts all of these and said the Gardaí coerced her mm -hmm. and then she doesn't name the person. So, t like, what's your opinion about all that to this day, about that, about her testimony? Right. So I think there are there are many victims in this um what I would, you know, say was a, a conspiracy to revert the course of justice. There's the original victim, Madame de Plantier. There's her family. Then you have myself and my ex-partner, Jules, and our families. And then you've got other people who were, were drawn into this um, conspiracy by cops who... So Maria Farrell saw somebody, and, and it wasn't me, in Skull High Street on the Saturday, I think the 21st of December, 1996. And she gave a description of this person. And they were, they were wearing a black coat. Uh, they looked... She thought they looked foreign, and they appeared to be following Madame de Plantier. And they were about, she put the height down as five foot eight in the original statement. They took three other statements from her. Mm. Um, and by the time they took the last statement, the height of the person got up to, I think, six foot two, which is still two and a half inches shorter than I am. But then they thought, and now Maria Farrell said this when she was in court, and, yeah. you know, I staged an, an unsuccessful attempt to uh, sue the state uh, back in 2014. Team. And as part of that proceeding, she actually said that they they convinced her that I was the murderer and that to identify me as the person that she'd seen fleetingly in the early hours of the morning, walking um, maybe three or four miles away from the scene. Um, and she believed then at that point that I probably was the murderer. And she now she subsequently retracted that statement in 2005, I think it was. You know, but she, I mean, I, she, so the, my answer to that question is really, she's another victim. And I, you know, she was manipulated. She was manipulated and used by the, the, the bad cops. Yes. And, you know, going on to that, then the, the, the band and phone recordings. So you said earlier about Ooh. the transcriptions and the tapes, but a lot of these recordings from band and Garda station, when they were used in the Fennelly Commission, a lot of things came out in that too, didn't it? They did, yeah. And it was interesting. I mean, I've got the transcripts of them. Um, it's a pity we didn't get the whole lot because the lots were destroyed. Uh, they were dumped, but it wasn't, it wasn't to do with anything nefarious or, or, or um, you, 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 you know, like destroying evidence. It, there was a big flood in Bandon back in at a certain point, and a lot of the things just got ruined. Um, now, the Fennelly Commission in, in found, you know, there, there was... The, the Family Commission said they, they couldn't actually find proof of um, the guards actually breaking the law by making false statements, but they did say there was evidence within the transcripts that they were they were thinking about doing that. 
And I mean, one of the phrases was that there were two detectives talking. Um, one detective said to the other, we're going to have to get that out of the statement. That, that's got to be shredded. Right. You know, so there was clear evidence that there was a, certainly a will to um, commit a, a very serious criminal offence. Right, exactly, yes. Well, there was never quite enough proof for either GSOC or or the Fenley Commission to, you know, to, to uh, accuse or jacuse, as the, the French would say. Yeah, exactly. And just as regards some of the theories then, because, you know, there's all these things about the ex-lover, Bruno, the, the hitman maybe from her husband, you know, all of these different things. Do you have any theory yourself that wh- what happened? I had a very strong feeling very early on as the lead journalist on it, and this was, I wasn't the only person who felt this as well. I mean, this was felt that it was something to do with France. And when there's a Latin phrase, qui bono, qui bono, who benefits? Mm. And one of the first things you do when you're looking at a crime is to see who would benefit from the death of a certain person. Now, we know, and I know this factually, I don't know exactly how much, but there was a, a large amount of insurance money on Madame de Plantier. Okay. She's married to a guy, the third wife. He's already in a relationship with a woman he subsequently marries after she, you know, is 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 killed, assassinated, or whatever you want to say in, in Ireland. And it always seemed very highly suspicious. Uh, and but because they, the the guards and the one chief detective, lead detective, decided he was going to put me in the frame from day one, they never bothered. They did go to France to make some inquiries. They never spoke to the husband. They actually weren't allowed to speak to anybody. And this, I think a group of them in, in early 1997 spent a week really just being um, having a holiday in, 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 in Paris. So there was never there was never any. No, so I'm hoping now that that, that bit of the investigation, which okay. should have been okay. done there 25 years ago, might now commence with the, the cold case review. It, when you went there as a, and like and the, the scene of the crime in the very beginning, when you went there as a journalist and you know you were you know checking out things around the house and being doing what a journalist does, do you? Well, I mean, I I, I, I didn't check out things around the house because I went to the scene. Yeah, you know, and I, I was asked to go to the scene. And in case your listeners or readers don't know, I was the correspondent, the, the region local correspondent for the. It was then called. The Cork Examiner, De Pierre, probably call it in Cork, yeah. De Pierre, probably. Um, and Eddie Cassidy, their uh, staff reporter, rang me and gave me bare bone details and a location and sent me out on the story. And this is the Monday before Christmas, you know. And I went out there and, uh, you know, I, I, if I'd have been out, I. <laughs> Best thing that could have happened is I'd have got home later on, and somebody said, "Oh, there's been a phone call from the Cork Examiner. They were trying to get you." And you know, if I'd have been out, I wouldn't have actually turned up at the scene as as the first journalist. Right? Do you feel that the police looked at, at that you being there then later as like the killer ter- returning to the scene of the crime? I, well, yeah, that's what I mean. That's what they were saying. But I mean, that's just um, you know, that's just so. And, and crazily, crazily fantastic, isn't it? You know, a reporter goes out, commits a crime, uh, and then disappears somehow, not leaving any evidence at all. You know, no DNA, nothing. Must be very clever to do that. And then turns up as the reporter on the scene. I mean... Yeah, it's like a Hollywood movie. Uh, it's, it's beyond fiction, isn't it, really? Beyond fiction. 
my last question, which is something is just is the last question. Yeah, but yeah. Do, do you think that you could ever sit down with her son and have like a face to face? Well, do I want to? Does he want to? I don't think so. It may be. I, I thought you were going to do, you know, you remember Columbo? Peter Falk, yeah. that great actor. He's, he's <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Just what I got is one last question. Oh, yeah, yeah, I understand. Yeah. The one that gets you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I thought you, I thought you were going to hit <laughs> No, no, I'm not doing no, that. I'm no, not closing no, no, the case no, today. No. Yeah. On that, I'm totally sympathetic to her son, who I think does believe. Now, I think there's actually maybe a bit of a shift in, um, you know, thinking and, and feelings in France. I'm not sure because I'm not seeing anything to do with them. No, I, I mean, all I've done is uh, over the years, I've always expressed my total sympathy to her family. And my prayer, as I said, has always been uh, that the truth comes out. Uh, and the truth being that I'm not the murderer. Yes. You know, the thing about this case is it's a long time saying it, isn't it? A long time and it's taken over your life because I imagine as a journalist now, maybe you have less work because of this whole situation. Oh, well, I haven't really been able to work functionally as a journalist for many years because of this. It's come, you know, it, 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 once, once the journalist becomes the subject of the story, he's no longer... You know, he, he can't actually be um, a viable uh, reporter. So that's why I focus right. on my poetry. And I should just probably say I've got two collections of poetry. I've got a new DVD out. I'm trying to make a podcast. When I say trying, it's a, it's a long process. And I'm in the process of making a podcast, which I hope will be out later this year. Well, good luck with that. Yeah. I've got a one-man poetry and storytelling show, which I'm, um, I've been performing locally in, in West Cork. And I'm hoping to maybe take that on the road at some point. I've got, um, you know, a new home, a new, a new sort of future. Um, my sympathies are also to Jules as well, because, you know, she, she, she was very, 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 she was arrested twice, and they, they treated her very, very badly. Um, and, um, yeah, so I'm just hoping the truth comes out. I hope for your sake, I hope for uh, Sophie, the Tuscan, the, the Plantier's family, that the truth comes out and... You know, just for the people of school as well that, you know, have had this. Yeah, absolutely. They were another line of victims, really, because it really split the community. Yes, yes. So, Ian, listen, it's been lovely talking to you. Gurmila Margaret and Iowa. We'll wait and see what the next chapter brings. Brilliant. And look, good luck with the rest of your endeavours. And I hope um, I hope things work out for you. And we'll talk again in the future. Mr. Ian Bailey, everyone. Thank you very much. Gurmila, thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Mr. Ian Bailey, for coming on the show. And, you know, we wish you the best of luck in your legal cases and we hope everything works out for you. And we appreciate you taking the time to tell your side of the story because in this case, obviously, there are lots of stories and lots of one-sided stories. And we don't want to say if someone's innocent or guilty, but the truth of the matter is you cannot be proven guilty until all the facts and all the evidence is there. And in the Irish courts, they have deemed you innocent. In the French courts, they have deemed you guilty. And unfortunately, there are different criminal systems and which is right, who knows. But the truth of the matter is, you know, if you are vindicated, these people who accused you will not come out and say they were wrong. And everybody deserves a fair trial and a fair hearing. And we cannot just base it completely on character. And even though people may watch the documentaries and feel Ian Bailey is the killer, this is not always the case. You, can ha you have to look beyond this. And some people may say to me, oh, 
you're defending him, Simon, but I'm not defending anybody. I'm defending the facts and I'm defending the case. And it's a brutal case. And, you know, I feel sorry for the family of uh, Sophie Toscanda de Plantier. And I feel that her death is a tragedy. And this thing can be hopefully solved one day. Will it be Ian Bailey? I don't think so. But if it is, I stand corrected. And will it be somebody else, another suspect? I don't know either. I don't know. I'm neutral in all of this. I just see the facts and I present them as I see them and I'm talking to the person. So for me, it's an intriguing case and it's a tragic case. And we just hope that it's resolved after all these years because it's destroyed lots of people's lives. The people of Skull, you know, Ian Bailey, his partner Jules, Sophia Duscon de Plantier's family, her son, lots of people. And this needs to be resolved in some way or the other. Will that ever happen? Who knows? We don't know. Maybe the evidence is lost. Maybe these people will go to their grave not knowing the truth. But I think a younger generation now would like to know more. And unfortunately in society, once you're painted and tarred with that brush, you're the suspect. There's no going back. Even if you're proven innocent, people will always look at you in that light. But we have to look beyond character. We have to look beyond what people think of you, their personal opinions, and get the facts. Because you don't have to like somebody. But if they're innocent, they're innocent. Just because you don't like them doesn't mean they're guilty. This has nothing got to do with it. And whether we think of Ian Bailey as somebody who was rash in his own words, or we think of him as intimidating or a unique character, it doesn't mean anything. So we have to only look at the facts. And if the Irish court is wrong, they're wrong. If the French court is wrong, they're wrong. But we have to find the definitive answers. And I hope one day we do, for everybody's sake. So... Thank you again, Ian, for coming on the show and telling us your side of the story. I'll let the viewers decide. Watch the documentaries, listen to this podcast and hear Ian's version. And you decide for yourself. And everybody has their own opinion. But for me, we just have to wait and see and hope that something comes from all of this with the new cold case and with the new steps forward in DNA evidence. Let's hope we can kind of find out the answer once and for all. And just say, you know, obviously for Sophia's family and everything, rest in peace, Sophia. And it's been a long time and it's a lot of pain and tragedy, but we hope that everybody can move on and things can change in the near future. So my name is Simon Kay. This is the Collective Whisper podcast. Thank you again for listening. We hope you've enjoyed the show, however controversial it may be. And we hope to hear you back again in the future for more entertaining guests. So until then, take care of yourself, take care of your family and the people you love. Until next time, bye-bye.